This is the remix. McKinnon stays in it running back to the left of Mahomes. Now they float a pass to the near side, and it's caught! Touchdown! Kansas City! Travis Kelsey on a nine-yard corner route. Perfectly thrown by Mahomes and a great route by Kelsey. And the Chiefs get a touchdown on their first drive of the season. Chiefs first down and goal to go at the three. They go to a two-back set. Both Hardman and Edwards-Alaire in the backfield at the same time. They shovel it inside. Edwards-Alaire. Touchdown. Kansas City. Two drives. Two touchdowns. And the Chiefs are on fire in this first quarter of the season. Fourth and two Chiefs at the Cardinal four. Swing it right side, Edwards Hilaire, angling, inside, touchdown! Kansas City inside the near front pylon. Three drives, three touchdowns for Patrick Mahomes. Now the Chiefs first down and goal to go at the one yard line of Arizona, leading 23 to seven. Jet motion, Mahomes firing at left side. He wants Jody Fortson, comes back to the ball, caught, touchdown! Kansas City, Jody Fortson all the way back from the Achilles injury, and he tastes the sweet nectar of the end zone. First down, goal to go up to two. Running back is McKinnon. He had the cutback run earlier in this drive. They fake it to him, they throw left, it's caught by Hartman. Touchdown, Kansas City. Hartman goes right to left in motion and then gets a free area right at the goal line. A two-yard touchdown pass from Mahomes, his fifth of the game. Adam Candy in today for Ed Graney. Ed will be back tomorrow. He is flying back from L.A. Uh, We started the show with the question, who deserves the most blame for the Raiders' loss to the Chargers? Coming in at 60%, Derek Carr, a runaway winner on the poll. The offensive line got 18%, Josh McDaniels 14%, and Khalil Mack. Got 8% as well. So Derek Carr uh, taking the most of the blame after the Raiders season opening loss to the Chargers. Um, So one thing that I thought was curious in that game, Devontae Adams had a monster game, 10 catches, 141 yards and a touchdown. We saw Darren Waller with four catches on six targets, targets for 79 yards. Uh, But Hunter Renfro did not get targeted until the third quarter. He had three catches for 21 yards in that game. Are we looking at a trio of pass catchers? Are we going to basically have every game at least one of those three be unproductive? Well, it's hard to say because we don't know what this offensive line is going to look like and how much time Derek Carr is going to have to throw, right? We need to know that Devontae Adams is going to get his targets while being able to work everybody else in and Maybe it is Hunter Renfro who tends to lose out more because there are only so many footballs to go around here. So I'm not ready to make that declaration yet. And we don't know nearly enough about Josh McDaniels and what he wants to accomplish on the offense. Maybe it's a week by week sort of thing based on the personnel that they're going against defensively and what they think they're going to be given. So is it really a bad thing in the end for the Raiders if one of those receivers doesn't have a good week and they win? We're going to point to these things when they lose. So... The and if they win part is obviously the important part because if they win, we're not uh, focusing on why they lost or what went wrong nearly as much. But I think the interesting part, and like I started the show, 
the macro view here, the Raiders before the game, they got their deal done with Darren Waller, signed him to an extension. He got three more years added on, $51 million more. He only had two years and roughly $14 million left. So now he's got a five-year contract with the Raiders, $66.25 million. Um, the important part of NFL contracts, only $19.25 million of that is guaranteed, though. So the Raiders, it's effectively a two-year deal for Waller worth $25 million. And then after that, the Raiders can essentially go one or year by year with Darren Waller. But after week one, plus that contract from Darren Waller, I think it's fair to look at the Raiders. And even if we don't know exactly how much time Carr is going to have, even if we don't know exactly what this passing offense is going to look like over the course of an entire season, I think it was a mistake for the Raiders to pay all three of these pass catchers. I think when you look at trading for and giving Adams the big contract, giving Renfro the extension, and now giving Waller the extension. That's just not a great use of resources. It's not a great use of a finite uh, salary cap where you only have so much space to spend money. When you have a bad offensive line, when your secondary is probably not going to be very good, when the rest of your defense besides the edge rushers probably aren't going to be very good, it probably wasn't smart to pay all three of those guys. They probably would have been better off sticking with two of them, paying Adams and Renfro or Adams and Waller, whatever that combination was going to be, rather than pay three because you have too many holes on this roster to be a legitimate contender. Because I, I, I view the third one, whether it's Waller or whether it's Renfro, like that's a luxury, right? When you have a good, a great third pass catcher, that's a luxury. And for the Raiders to pay all three of them while ignoring the offensive line, I think we're going to look back and say that's a massive roster-building mistake by McDaniels and Ziggler. And that's the key piece while ignoring the offensive line, right? It's it's great to go, you know, stars and scrubs essentially with your team, but the scrubs can't be the guys who protect the stars. And then the Raiders find themselves in a situation like they did this week where, yeah, you can try to get the ball down the field to the stars. Derek Carr was under pressure. And most importantly, Derek Carr underthrew Devontae Adams on the biggest pass of the game. And look, we are not here to bury the Raiders entirely today. They lost by five, but they had a lot of help from the Chargers and the play calling in the second half by the Chargers, which completely went into a shell. They were so completely passive in the second half. They ran on early down so much that they allowed the Raiders back into the game. And that's what's concerning if you're a Raiders fan, I think. You were allowed back into the game, and the stars that you acquired to do it couldn't do it. Is it is it funny that we're sitting here and you can almost make the same argument for both the Chargers and the Raiders that, hey, uh, you shouldn't actually feel that good about week one because the other team sucked a lot. Like, you can say it, definitely say that about the Chargers, right? Hey, you only won by five, and Carr threw you three interceptions. And at the same time, the Raiders, it's like, yeah, you only lost by five. But the Chargers, they just didn't even try in the second half. That was just a pathetic offensive experience. I think if you look at it from the Raiders' perspective, you probably see the fact that we held, air quotes, held the Chargers to 24. Well, if you held the Chargers to 24, but you didn't get any pressure on the quarterback, then I think the Chargers probably did a lot to help you get to that point. That being said, if we just are going to say it's a matter of winning and losing games, they had a chance to go win the game. And if they get the two-point conversion and make it a 24-21 game, it's a completely different situation that the Chargers have to manage there at the end. So, look, the, the Raiders did a lot of things wrong. Derek Carr played one of the worst games we've seen Derek Carr play. 
and they still lost by five points. So I think it's more the Chargers should be looking at this and saying, why did we let the Raiders hang around in this game? What did we do wrong here? So Raiders defense here. Uh, it's interesting where they did not get very much pressure from their two high-paid edge rushers. They did not sack Justin Herbert in that game. But you do walk away feeling like, well, well the defense wasn't the issue. The defense gave them a chance to win in the second half by not allowing any points on the final five charger drives. Like it's, I don't know if I should be optimistic or more optimistic than I was to start the season about the defense. Cause I didn't have high expectations for the defense. And I, I thought they played better than I expected, especially in that second half against the chargers. But it also feels like if they're going to outperform, they're going to need Chandler Jones and Max Crosby to be really good. They're going to need those guys to be wrecking offensive lines. And we didn't see that at all. So I, I, I guess I'm a little confused as to what I should think about the Raiders defense after week one, where there was some good things, but also the part that I thought was supposed to be good wasn't good at all. And I don't know. No, and let's go into is, the stats a little bit. Yeah. Like We have some of the numbers at this point. Seven pressures for Max Crosby, but only two hits. And total... They had three hits as a team. The other one came from Chandler Jones, but Chandler Jones on 60 snaps on 30 pass rushes had two pressures. And if the Raiders are going to do anything this year, that number has to increase because this is a team that built itself to say, all right, we're going to try to be passable in terms of our defensive backfield, but we're going to get to the quarterback. We are going to be able to keep up in the AFC West with all of the great pass rushers that are there because we can get to the quarterback. They hit the quarterback three times. They hurried him 13 times. They didn't sack him once. Granted, the Chargers do have a pretty good offensive line, but you know you know who else had three pressures beyond the two for Chandler Jones? Cleland Furl. That's not what you want to hear. <laughs> our boy! That's our boy! So they didn't need to sign Chandler Jones. They could have just lined Cleland Furl up at the other edge rusher. Uh, pass rushing grade yesterday for Cleveland Furl of 70 from PFF. Ooh, pass uh -oh. rushing grade of 65.7 for Chandler Jones. Uh-oh. Cleveland Furl with a 70 pass rush grade. He's going to be pretty good this year. I like that guy. Finally, they're going to regret not giving him the fifth-year extension. Um, all right. One other thing. I am i don't know if you have a hot take on this. Mark Davis went to the Raiders season opener instead of game one of the WNBA finals. Do you think you made a mistake? What did he do last time he had the option to uh, go to an Aces playoff game or a Raiders preseason game? Well, it was a preseason game, and he went to the Aces playoff game. Right. And so yeah, he went back and forth. Look, when, when, you, when you got a, a split family like that, you got to make the in-laws happy sometimes. You got to make the regular family happy sometimes, right? Christmas Eve in one place, Christmas in the other. I, uh, I feel like he gave... Um, Easter to the WNBA and Christmas and Thanksgiving to the NFL. Wow. Wow. Uh, all of you biblical historians come way in for Tyler here as to which is the more important day on the calendar. Well, one has a bunny and the other one has an old man who lives at the North Pole. <laughs> and then the other one has a fictional event that involved uh, Native Americans and pilgrims. Which one's more most important to you, Jared? I mean, I like like Thanksgiving is my Christmas. Okay. All right. Um, I feel like I just went into some sort of like Reddit subgroup with Jared that I didn't anticipate going into. I think that's sort of what Jared's existence is. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm here to hold your hand and pull you places that you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go. I don't, I don't want to go. And I'm just like, you'll have fun. Uh, so Mark Davis, he gave this quote to USA Today before uh, the weekend. 
saying, we don't have the eyeballs, talking about the WNBA, we don't have the eyeballs. How in the hell are you going to ha- get the eyeballs, eyeballs when you're going up against the opening day of the National Football League? That part is tough. I agree with them 100%. Like to have game one of the WNBA finals at noon on week one of the NFL uh, schedule is pretty brutal. Like as far as getting people to pay attention. However, I still think if you're Mark Davis, you're going to your team's game that's playing for a championship. And I don't think you get to say, well, we need the eyeballs. And then they don't even get your eyeballs. Like you own the team and you're saying, well, we need people to watch it, but I'm not going to watch it. Also his reasoning. Did you see his reasoning? He talked to Paul Gutierrez. His reasoning as to why he went to the Raiders game instead of the Aces game is because he didn't know enough about the team because the starters didn't play in the preseason. Yeah, I don't want to get into that. Okay. Like, uh, no, 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 no. It's not. I'm not saying like, like, oh no, Tyler. I don't want to talk about that. Like, I, I just happen to know that this segment is near its conclusion right now, and we could probably go for an hour talking about that statement alone. But let's talk about the eyeballs thing just briefly here. Yep. We're talking about TV eyeballs. Because the Aces sold that game out and had more than 10,000 people at Mandalay Bay yesterday. Uh, As someone who attempted to park in the parking garage, I know that very well because there was not a spot to be found anywhere at Mandalay Bay. So the eyeballs in the arena were there. It's just the eyeballs on television. Yeah, if I'm Mark Davis, I'm absolutely fine to complain about the fact that I was scheduled for my game one in the middle of NFL week one. But at the same time, do I want to give that quote right after a team... Uh, right after my fans sold out the arena. I think it's more a matter of poor timing. All right, coming up next, we jump into some UNLV football in Bischoff's Briefs. Bischoff's Briefs. Speaking as an extremely clever person, I feel a bit personally attacked by the concept of an evil genius. Anti-intellectualism is rife in the world today, encouraged no small amount by a media concerned that their advertisers' claims that their breakfast cereal induces hallucinogenic bliss in woodland creatures might not hold up to rigorous academic study. Bischoff's Briefs. Well, let's see how far your f- street smarts and common sense get you when you need someone to figure out how to turn a city-sized clot of oceanic waste plastic into drinkable water and hospital-grade insulin. Bischoff's Briefs. Just because I'm smarter than everyone else doesn't mean I look down on people. Someone has to make my sandwiches. Just because I can envision a vastly more efficient society with myself as absolute dictator doesn't mean I want to go to that amount of trouble. Just because I ordered the installation of an oubliette in my basement doesn't mean I have sinister intentions for it. Bischoff's Briefs. So stop asking questions and get your jackhammer out. Adam Candy in today for Ed Grady. Danny's in studio, by the way. Um, for all three of you, did any of you watch UNLV play Cal in football on Saturday? How was... would I have done that? <laughs> Danny says he watched part of it. I watched the uh, the first quarter and part of the fourth quarter. All right. So if you lived in Las Vegas, this was the recommended way to watch UNLV play Cal on Saturday. Download Fubo TV and sign up for a free trial and then hope you remember to cancel Fubo TV, which I have yet to do. Um, But here's the best part. Not only did you have to sign up for Fubo TV, you then had to add the sports package on Fubo TV. Because if you just did the normal Fubo TV package, you you only get regular Pac-12 network. But this game was on the Pac-12 network. Bay Area, 
which to get that on Fubo TV, you've got to pay extra if you don't cancel the free trial. That was the recommended way by UNLV to watch this game if you were not in the Bay Area, which is incredible. All of the complaining that I've done on this show about watching UNLV athletics, normally it comes back to the Mountain West television deal or television partners not wanting to put UNLV on TV. That's usually what this boils down to, and you're left with bad options like in-house streaming or Facebook games, stuff like that. This is not. This is nothing to do with the Mountain West, nothing to do with UNLV. This is on the Pac-12 because it was a Pac-12 home game. This is their television deal where it's the Pac-12 Bay Area channel that you can only get in the Bay Area or apparently through Fubo TV. So don't blame anybody who didn't actually watch this game. That's perfectly fine because that is a lot of steps to actually do. And if I don't cancel this in like five days, I'm going to owe them like 80-something dollars. Now, the actual game itself. Cal beat UNLV 22-14. And my big question from this game is pretty much simply, is anything different about this team from last year? Last year's team won two games, but more importantly, they went 0-6 in one possession games. Uh, often, they lost those games. Not so much. They were simply shut down last season. It was close games that cost UNLV a lot of wins last season. And this game... UNLV's defense kept giving UNLV's offense a chance to win. It's actually very similar to the Raiders. Uh, the UNLV defense gave up a field goal early in the third quarter. That made it 20-7. to seven. UNLV actually answered immediately with a touchdown, 20-14, to 14, middle of the third quarter. That's the final score. Cal did not score on four straight possessions, meaning UNLV, who also recovered an onside kick in there, had five chances, down by six, to go take the lead, and on five different offensive possessions, they failed. They just, we're not, we're not good enough. A team that you would expect to be better offensively than defensively, uh, given that the coach is an off former offensive coordinator, did not happen. Team could not score on five drives down by six. The defense was fine. Defense gave them a chance there. Um, beyond that, here's here's the, I think, the part of these games that, Every time they lose by one possession, it feels like there is some mistake that they made that was perfectly preventable that cost them. Maybe not the only reason they lost, or the main reason, but there's always something. One of the big issues in the Marcus Arroyo era is the burning of timeouts. They do it all of the time. In that second half against Cal, UNLV called a timeout when it, Cal had the ball and it was 4th and sixteen. Cal had the punt team on the field. They're punting. It's 4th and 16, and UNLV burned a timeout. Now, we don't know why Pac-12 Bay Area didn't exactly give us a a replay or any reasoning behind it. Just, ah, UNLV called a timeout on 4th and 16. I would assume, like, they had 10 guys on the field, right? That'd be my guess, is that's the only reason why you would call a timeout in that scenario. I guess I hope that's the reason they called it there. But that's something that is perfectly preventable. And then late in the fourth quarter, UNLV, one of their last two drives to go down and take the lead in this game, Brumfield in the offense, they're in the red zone and they let the play clock burn all the way down to zero. And Marcus Arroyo has to call a timeout to prevent a delay a game Two completely wasted timeouts that if UNLV had would have helped them out on their final drive. They got the ball back with about a minute to go like that. They could have used a couple of more timeouts there to potentially try and go down and win this game. Uh, And then another issue. 
Uh, second to last drive, UNLV gets down inside the 10-yard line, first and goal. First play, Brumfield throws incomplete uh, through about a one-yard pass. They're on the 10-yard line. And then, still from the 10, they run a zone read, and Brumfield keeps it running to the boundary. They got down to the 10. That was a good drive by UNLV, and then got really conservative on two plays. And then all of a sudden, it's third down and then fourth down, and UNLV couldn't do much to score because this was the real issue. They could not protect Doug Brumfield to end that game. On third and goal from the eight, Cal sent a six-man blitz. UNLV did not keep anybody extra in the block. They had five offensive linemen trying to block six. Brumfield had a rushed incompletion. Then on fourth and goal from the eight, Cal sent a seven-man blitz. UNLV actually did keep in an extra blocker here, but again, seven versus six, Brumfield got hit as he threw and threw another incompletion. So the two biggest plays there inside the 10, chance to take the lead, UNLV couldn't protect Doug Brumfield. Then they actually got the ball back, right? They got a completion, got cross midfield, and then on back-to-back plays... A four-man rush beat a five-man offensive lineman. Cal did not blitz on the last two plays of the game and still sacked Brumfield on back-to-back plays. Now, I think there's actually a lot that goes into that. Obviously, when there is a four-man rush against a five-man offensive line, you expect your quarterback to have some time to throw the ball, and he did not. Those last two plays were simply the offensive line not being good enough. But the two prior ones, when it was third and goal and fourth and goal, when Cal sends a six-man blitz and UNLV doesn't keep anyone in the block, that is, I'm guessing the primary blame is probably going to fall on Doug Brumfield for not recognizing and keeping somebody in. Marcus Arroyo gave him a lot of praise after the first game for making checks at the line of scrimmage, for making his own calls at the line of scrimmage. So I'm guessing if we went back and UNLV's probably looking at saying, hey, Doug, you've got to recognize that and make that check to more protection, keep somebody in there. But that still also goes back to coaching, right? If you're allowing the quarterback to make those checks, you have the confidence in the quarterback to make those checks, and he didn't in that scenario. So that ultimately ends up being the big problem for UNLV is the offensive line could not protect Brumfield, and Brumfield couldn't give himself the amount of guys to block. And then the other part of this, I think looking forward what to take away, Doug Brumfield dominated Idaho State was not under pressure for the entirety of that game. Doug Brumfield against Cal, 8 of 33, 18 of 33 for 206 yards. Overly simplistic, but through two weeks, Doug Brumfield's good when he isn't under pressure. Doug Brumfield's bad when he's under pressure, right? That, I think, is the big question going forward. Can they protect Doug Brumfield? Can they give him time to throw? If they can, if this offensive line is good, if they can make the right checks to the line of scrimmage to make sure they have enough blockers, Brumfield's probably going to be a pretty good quarterback this year. Brumfield's probably going to be uh, pushing top half of the Mountain West in terms of best quarterbacks. But if the offensive line is bad, or if they continue to have situations where six guys are coming and they don't have six guys to block, Brumfield's probably going to look pretty bad. Brumfield's probably not going to be very good under pressure because what the only thing he's really shown he can do when he's under pressure is run. Get out of it and run, which is probably fine. I mean, he's a very good runner, and you'll probably take that most of the time. But that, I think, is going to be the big issue for this offense going forward. How good's the offensive line? If they can protect Brumfield, they'll probably be pretty good offensively. If they can't, they're probably going to have a lot of games like Saturday where they score 14 points and they lose to Cal, not because of the defense, but because of the offense. What are you Tyler. pointing at, Jared? I can't tell what you're... Hold on. Jared's pointing at something. No, I wanted I wanted Adam Candy to oh. go, and then I had a okay. I had a question afterwards. I was trying to orchestrate this and on the You're pointing fly. at something I can't see. I so. was pointing down at the... <laughs> where Adam Candy comes from. Okay, go ahead, Adam. 
Thank you for pointing at Hartsdale, New York. Uh, my <laughs> take is that the Mountain West is a league in which there is not a single quarterback not named Jake Hayner who's going to perform well under pressure. Hayner. Right? Like, the, yeah. like these are the things that decide games in a bottom of the of the group of five league like the Mountain West. So, yeah, if they can protect him, they'll be okay. I mean, look, this, this is not a game I expected UNLV to win in the first place. They covered, so, hey, good for a lot of people. But... I don't really know that I got a whole lot less out of UNLV than I expected in this particular game. No, I think that was my expectation was that they were going to cover because Cal, I don't, I think we, at the end of the year, we're looking at Cal as second worst in the Pac-12, only Colorado's probably worse. Uh, but that's I mean, good for UNLV to be that competitive with any Pac-12 team. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that changes too much going forward what UNLV or what I expect UNLV to be, which is a... Uh, slightly below average Mountain West team that if they can finally win a one score game, they'll have four or five wins this year. If they don't, then it's Scott Frost 2.0 here in Las Vegas and Marcus Arroyo is looking around saying, how the hell are we this bad, but we lose every game by three points. Go ahead, Jared. Okay, so my question is, could they get that kid from Idaho State to manage their timeout so that they don't yes. burn them? That kid would probably be better at it. I think I think that's why Idaho State did they burn any timeouts? No, no, they actually took them in very well placed because yeah. they have a twelve year old whose entire job is I manage the timeouts. Yeah, that kid's important. Yeah, you need a timeout coordinator on the sideline. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some Major League Baseball and eventually we'll give away tickets to go see Alex. Uh, we knew once we hit him a few times, he really gets shook, and and you saw on on CC's sack, he was pretty much curling into a ball before we even got back there so um great dude great player he's been having a great year but we know once you get pressure on him he kind of shuts down and he's not as effective with the with the crowded pocket so uh that was that was the key to it there's nothing extra with khalil mack khalil mack is that way all the time this is just your first time seeing it i'll be better about making two aggressive decisions when i don't have to you know that's really what it came down to is me forcing the ball to, to my guys and in moments where I didn't need to. You're listening to the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Here, that's not very fair of you to play Joey Bosa sound from last year. Derek Carr tried to block Joey Bosa on that one play. He did not curl into a ball. Okay. I, I mean, those final two plays. Hey. Hey, he tried to block Joey Bosa. He stood near Joey Bosa as Devontae Adams was about to get sacked. It happened. <laughs> it happened. Um, I did want to uh, talk to Adam Candy about something very important in the world of baseball. Uh, they are going to ban the shift starting next season. Jesus. Uh, the rules in which that they are implementing, uh, there will be uh, have to be two infielders, not the pitcher and catcher, but two infielders on either side of second base, and both of those infielders on either side have to be inside the outer boundary of the infield. So you got to be on the dirt. You can't be out on the grass. Um, Adam, how do you feel about banning the shift in major league baseball? Look, I get the intent. You want to have more offense in the game, but this isn't the way to do it. Uh, there was research that came out over the weekend. I wish I had it right in front of me right now talking about how a lot of these things that have been implemented in the minor leagues haven't actually accomplished what they were set out to accomplish. So you want to fix what's going on in baseball I don't think that's the answer and I think the obsession that they have with let's fix pace of play and let's let's fix defense I, I don't see where that brings the fans into the game I understand why they think that 
But maybe if you were to, I don't know, not do things that actively work against the game, like locking out the players, that would do a lot more to build interest than banning the shift. No, no, no. Ban the shift. Keep the lockouts coming. Every offseason, we need a lockout. It's fun. Um, so I hate banning of the shift um, simply because I think it's like anti-intelligence. It's basically saying, uh, sure, we know exactly where you hit the ball, but we can't put a player there because Major League Baseball now says that's against the rules. I think that's stupid. I think you've got to be better if that's a problem and adjust to it to not hit We're the ball there, bunt. right? Like it's 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 just anti-intelligence to me to tell people, hey, you can't put players in certain places. So I do not like it. I am not like excited about a year a season without the shift being uh, allowed to happen in Major League Baseball. Um, I'm curious to see how much I hate it once we actually watch baseball games, uh, but I don't like the idea of it. The other part I was curious as somebody, as our resident referee here, is the pitch clock unnecessarily complicated? Because if you go through this, it is 30 seconds between hitters, 20 seconds between pitches when there are runners on base, 15 seconds between pitches when the bases are empty. So we already have three different pitch clocks. The catcher has to be in the catcher's box with nine seconds left. The batter has to be in the batter's box with eight seconds left. The pitcher can step off the rubber twice per plate appearance, uh, which is pickoff moves, or you just step off to step off. But if the pitcher steps off a third time, if he picks the guy off successfully, it doesn't count against him. It's fine. The runner is out. If he picks off a third time and the guy doesn't get uh, caught out, then he's awarded second on a balk mound visits have 30 seconds hitters can ask for time once per plate appearance walk up music's only supposed to be 10 seconds long is this like way too much uh, this is so so painfully knife twisting in the gut pain stupid this is so dumb this is so unnecessary <laughs> This screams of a bunch of grandpas sitting around the room trying to figure out how to resuscitate Ted Williams and put him back on the field. <laughs> what, what are we doing? What are we doing? Why? What? Who has said to themselves sitting in a Major League Baseball game, Ugh, that walk-up music is too long. I'm done <laughs> trying to legislate out the smarts of the game. Like you said, I'm done trying to legislate out the fact that this is a game built on strategy and the lack of a clock I, I don't get it i don't understand what rob manfred's obsession is with killing baseball from the inside in search of what please tell me what it is in search of what because tyler you're a lot younger than me and you're sitting here saying these aren't things that you want to see in the game and in theory, the only reason I can come up with for making these changes is that Rob Manford thinks he's reaching out to a younger generation in much the way that, you know, your cool uncle, air quotes, thinks he's going to, you know, talk about sports with you. And you're kind of like, oh, God, please, no, I don't want to do this. Like, please don't do this. Like, Rob Manford is that guy. This is so the pitch clock thing is supposedly going to shave, I think it's 20 to 30 minutes off the game is the expectation based on its use in the minor leagues, which is not going to attract somebody who's not already watching baseball. It's just going to make it, it might make it better for me as somebody who does watch a lot of baseball. I mean, oh, this game's going to take two hours and 50 minutes instead of three hours and 15 minutes or something like that. It's not going to attract new fans because, oh, this game is going to take 20 or 30 minutes uh, less of your time. That's not going to change anything. The pitch clock thing, it just, 
There, there, listen, there are times when you watch a baseball game and you do think, oh, just pitch the ball already, <laughs> right? Like it happens, but it's not a every inning occurrence. It's not even really an every game occurrence where you have a pitcher who takes 45, 50 seconds between pitches. I almost wonder, Adam, so in soccer, um, there's not like a specified amount of time that a player has to throw the ball in after it goes out of play. And occasionally guys take a long time because they can't decide who, which teammate they want to throw to. And in soccer, there is time wasting, but there's not specific amounts of times that you're allowed to lay on the ground or like the goalie can hold the ball for. It's sort of just referees discretion. And they'll tell people, Hey, let's, let's go throw the ball in, kick the ball. Like let's get back to play. Should there just be more of a vague, hey, the the umpire sort of has the ability to tell a pitcher, hey, you need to pitch the ball in the next couple of seconds, or I'm going to call a ball, or get in the box hitter, or this is gonna you're gonna have an automatic strike. Like, would that work in baseball? That's what it's gonna come down to anyway. These are all going to be spirit of the rule versus letter of the law kinds of calls, right? If the clock happened to be ticking from nine to eight and the catcher wasn't in the catcher's box, do you think the first time that happens there's gonna be a penalty for it? No. What they're going to do is the umpire is going to say to the catcher, hey, hurry it up, right? I can tell you as a soccer referee, when I get the captains together before the game, I say to both of them, look, when we get to the end of the game, get the ball back in play because you would want the other team to do the same if you were trailing, right? And I will then, if they are really slowing it down, I will then add time if I'm not in a situation where there's a fourth official adding official time, right? I, I'm going to keep adding time if you delay throw-ins, but that's not the situation baseball finds itself in here. They are in search of a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Tyler, if the game is three hours and 15 minutes versus three hours, do you ever really notice those 15 minutes? No, I don't because I don't sit and watch all three hours or three hours and 15 minutes. If I want to walk the dog in the middle of the game, guess what? Major League Baseball has done a good enough job of giving me massive options for how to consume the content. I can put it on the radio and listen on my phone. I can put it on my phone on video and walk and watch it while I walk into traffic. Like It's my <laughs> choice because they've given me the option to do this. So who are we helping here? Who is it that we're trying to solve a problem for? I don't get it. I mean, I I will 100% agree, but I'm going to go a little bit further. I want the games to take longer. Like, this is, like, this is my, like, what I enjoy watching. Make a, I, I'm fine watching a terrible Cubs game for four and a half hours because I'm a sick degenerate who's a Cubs fan. But... Good. You you want it to go quicker? Go, go away. Leave me with my four-hour games. Well, t Jared, you're, you're on top of this because who is the core fan of Major League Baseball these days? It is men, 40-plus, generally white males, and what are those guys doing by watching four hours of baseball? They are avoiding their families. And why are we trying to legislate the game away from your core fans doing what they want to do, which is getting away from their wives asking them to do things? I, I will say, first of all, so, um, I, I, tur I turned 32 yesterday, so let's not put me in my 40s yet. Um, and second, it's actually more of a family event where four hours of cursing drinking and flipping off whichever owner of the cubs happens to appear on the screen at whatever time so it's it's more of a camaraderie of yeah but to that end 
somehow I think the Justice family would find a reason to drink together and flip things off if they didn't have baseball. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, got, I don't got a good response to that. Like at a drive-in movie theater. <laughs> yeah, everyone we, in the trunk. We have been asked to keep it down. Iron Man Two is on. <laughs> All right, we got tickets to give away. Alice Cooper with Ooh. special guest Ace Freely Saturday, October 8th at the Dollar Loan Center in Henderson. Before you give out the number and give out the... Uh, caller number. Yes, give out the caller number. What is Alice Cooper? A person. Okay. A guitarist. No. Damn. I'm going to guess he's a lead singer. He! All right! That's what I wanted you to find out. Oh. Is it... If you if you knew that Alice Cooper is a he, there you go. Look at me, I'm smart. Seven zero two three six four eleven hundred is the phone number if you want to go see Alice Cooper with special guest Ace Freely Saturday, October eighth at the Dollar Loan Center in Henderson. Be calling number nine right now at seven zero two three six four eleven hundred. Power right again to the right side, outside the numbers, inside the ten, five, and he will score. Taysom Hill does it himself. Takes it around the right side. Got injured here last year. Not today. 11-yard touchdown. You're locked in the press box. Uh, Adam, you were on the show when Jared told us that he had Taysom Hill as his tight end in fantasy football. Uh, Jared has been cussing all morning because he did not start Taysom Hill in fantasy football. I mean... If you are going to make the bold move of choosing Taysom Hill to be on your team, don't you sort of have to make the commitment to playing him too? I I have Knox from Buffalo. I just assumed. Why do you also have Taysom Hill then? I, I was under the impression you just were like, I don't want to use any draft picks on a tight end. I'm just going to take Taysom Hill late and see if that works. But you drafted him as your backup tight end? There was a rush on tight ends, and I was just like, wait, everyone's taking two? What round? Oh, last round. Oh, okay. Oh, well, the last round before kicker and def- or defense and kicker. I just, I'm disappointed in you. Like, you, there, you there did was, well. You drafted Taysom Hill as a tight end, and he scored like a 70, had a 70 yard run and then a touchdown. But then I find out you didn't even use him. I have to apparently need to find somebody who's tight end needy in a league where every, a 16 man league where everyone drafted two tight ends. Why? So disappointing, Jared. So disappointing. I don't know. Uh, we have an important update from Ed Grady. Uh, according to a picture that he sent to Adam and I, he did, in fact, get the exit row seat with no seat in front of him. Nice. And, uh, yeah, that is good. That's work. hitting a gem. Uh, had A27 on Southwest and got the key seat to get have, on that plane. Have um, you guys ever been asked to move to the emergency exit seat? Yes. Have you? Have you? Yes. Yes. Oh. No. I have a bigger concern, though, with this photo that Uh-oh. was sent to us. <laughs> this is like the worst Instagram thirst trap ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wait. just legs. It's it's knees down, Ed Grady's <laughs> legs, uh, with his shoes. He's got his shoes on, so good for him. And he's uh, holding them straight up in the air somehow. Like, he's he's they're not relaxed on the ground. He no, not, he not at all. He's trying to, like make the legs point and yeah. is there is that a tattoo on the inside of his ankle yeah, yeah. okay well he's got point being yeah tattoos. he's got tattoos it was just a question about what i can see in the photo but 
ultimately <laughs> I'm I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like is the response supposed to be like a little more thigh please? <laughs> can Tyler can you with Ed's permission, can you put this up on... I am not asking uh, him for that permission Okay, on, I just want it up on Twitter. Jared, I need like, you to. Like, literally just put, like, best or worst thirst trap ever from Ed Graney. All right. Am I the only one that has an experience, which you three have, where you've been on a plane and somebody actually said no when they get asked, can you perform the duties in the exit row? What happened with me was the little lady that sat there, the... The um, flight attendant, I almost said another word, uh, went, um, ma'am, I just don't believe you can lift the door. I'm going to move you to this seat, and I'm going to ask around. And I was literally like a row over. I've gotten asked to move multiple times to the emergency seat once, but like I've gotten asked multiple times to move in my flight career. Well, career. yeah, that's yes. because you don't stop talking to people about all these great bets that you have. <laughs> hey, I no, actually, that's like the airplane is the one place where I well, airport too, where I don't want to talk to anyone. As soon as I get through security, headphones go on and they don't come off until I get where I'm going. The only time I've been asked to move is like, hey, the the plane's not full. Some of you need to go to the back so our weight is evenly yeah. distributed. But I've never yeah. I've, I've never experienced somebody said no to the exit row questions. Oh, well, I've only experienced like people like have signed up their kid in the emergency row mm -hmm. and the people are like, Oh, the kid can't be there. Can you please move over? Yeah, no, mine was mine was an eighty year old woman. Well look. If a 12-year-old can manage Idaho State's timeouts, I'm sure a 12-year-old can get me off a burning plane. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also might trust the 12-year-old over actual adults. I've also had people ask me to move because they'll uh, on Southwest, it's not assigned seating. They'll come in with kids in the very last boarding group, and they're like, oh, there's only singles left. Can you please Pay move? Pay for so early bird, sit, you losers. So right? I can sit next to my 13-year-old kid. Also, there's a way to do this. It's called spend your money. Also, have your kids cover their mouths if they're hacking. Just don't have kids. That, and, that is your pro tip. Don't have any of them at all, and none of this is ever an issue. And Kid don't get blinded by Ed Graney's legs. That's going to happen, too. Thanks, Adam.